All right, we'll go ahead and get started here. Sorry, I lost track of time. Um, so yeah, my name is Ryan Brandt, and uh, we're going to be going through the first, oh wow, this feels intimate, first hundred years of uh, church history or so. Um, we'll see how far we get. We might get as far as 150. We might end closer to 110 or so. Um, so this is a really fun subject. Um, there's usually less familiar familiarity in this uh, era, but I'll just assume you don't know anything. And it'll probably fill in a lot of blanks, uh, names you've heard, stuff you've heard. Uh, before I jump in, I just wanted to kind of take a step back and talk about why studying church history is necessary. Typically, it doesn't need much of a defense, but there's sometimes uh, prevailing sort of opinions in, in the back of folks' minds when they hear about church history. Why do we care about this? Why not just read the Bible, right? So here's the three problems that I sometimes run into. Usually they're not explicit. Very few people say this out loud, but it's the air that we breathe as evangelicals sometimes. It's everywhere. You just breathe in the air by uh, being alive today in, in um, the evangelical world. And the first issue, mostly with young folks that I have to overcome, is this problem of co contemporaneity. And this is getting at, it's kind of a word that is maybe a different form than you've seen, but this is the idea of being up to date. And um, specifically, it's an understanding that sees things, the worldview of seeing things as newer is better. Uh, newer ideas, newer anything better than old. Um, now again, you run into this usually with younger folks, but with older folks, typically you've figured out like wisdom, tried and true methods. There's something really important about old stuff, right? Uh, now, sometimes newer is better. Like when you have technology, for example, you always want the newest phone, right? It's faster. That makes sense. Newer technology is generally better. Um, it's true that, you know, some, some stuff is made to break these days. At least that's what some engineers have told me. But with the exception of that, technology, newer is typically better. But this doesn't apply to ideas necessarily. Um, sometimes old ideas are better than new ideas. Uh, so when you encounter the early church, we run into a bunch of people who are reading the same Bible that you are, and sometimes they're going to have different views. It's the same gospel, but they're going to have different views about secondary issues or whatever issues you encounter. And the reminder for you is to remember that a lot of these folks, and I'll mention the ones, studied under the disciples of Jesus. And that's pretty kind of cool when you think about it, right? Can you imagine reading somebody's book that they studied under John? John had a lot of disciples. And, and they'll tell you, here's what John meant. And I take that to be really, like, you know, outstandingly important because chances are they're going to have a better understanding of what John meant than just reading out of thin air. So is newer better sometimes, but not always, certainly not with ideas, uh, the next problem I run into is a little bit more common. Again, it's just air we breathe. No one's usually saying this necessarily. But this is getting at self-sufficiency, the idea that I just need the Bible, me and the Bible, and that's all I need, right? Especially with students, I run across this a lot. And this is really getting at a question of authority. 
not, not, not in you know, the way we mean it today. Authority is getting at reliable, trustworthy sources. And newer is better is typically communicating to me that you are a fine, trustworthy source of interpretation by yourself. And there's, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. Protestants believe that the gospel is clear in scripture, right? Anyone who sufficiently, can, you can read, you can pick up the Bible and understand the gospel, right? But this doesn't necessarily mean that the whole Bible's clear or that all these secondary issues are clear, et cetera, et cetera. And the fun thing about church history is you're opening up how other people read it just like you, much like you're in a community group or a redemption group with other folks who maybe know the scriptures just a little bit better than you, so you respect their opinion more than your own sometimes. But we're encountering people that spent their whole lives studying it, and sometimes studying under a disciple. So sola scriptura is not saying the Bible's the only authority. That's not what Protestants mean. They mean that the Bible's the highest authority. It's the ultimate trump card over other authorities. Uh, church history typically is seen as the next most important by Protestants, and then from there you have like pastor, community group leader, you know, stuff, and down and down and down. Um, you, you get the point, right? And then the final issue, you know, just to quickly address, like normally I spend a lot of time here, I'm just going to kind of blazing through this, is the problem of uniformity. And this is, again, something just in the air we breathe that we assume that Christians today, the way we are today, the issues we care about today, the issues we argue about today, whatever it is, are the same issues that have been universally cared about, argued about, etc. in history. And so the fun thing about encountering church history is seeing, oh, wow, they care deeply about this issue I've never really thought about, right? Um, and so we encounter some of that as we move on through. So that's just an FYI. Let's move on to the fun stuff. And before we dive right into 30 AD, just to give some background, some context to um, this early church. And there's three different contexts. The first is going to be the Greek context. Uh, this might be the least familiar to you, and that's okay. I'm going to be pretty broad on this first one. Um, you know, the, the world, the land of Judea, this uh, division of the Roman Empire, this little sort of nation state, um, uh, spoke Greek. Uh, that's not surprising to you. The New Testament's written in Greek. So that's the first thing to note. Secondly, and I cut out a lot of this just for the sake of your own sanity, that there's certain philosophies in the background that the early church are well aware of, that they're engaging with, uh, the Bible writers are engaging with as well. So just three philosophies I'm going to note really quick here. Uh, the first one, and this will come up, so that's why I'm saying it now. The first one is called Platonism. You've probably heard of Plato. And just uh, to give you it in a nutshell, Platonism is the belief in universals, or what you would call universal truth, right? The Platonists held that there is indeed truth out there, and they based it upon what they speculated to be that this material world was based on a blueprint, an invisible, immaterial blueprint. 
So when you're looking at a little puppy, a beagle, let's say, and you say, ah, pretty beagle, very cute dog, right? What you're getting at is uh, intuitively is you're seeing this dog as a reflection of perfect beagleness in this example. Same thing for a human. When you say good human, what you're getting at is the ideal, these universals. What is goodness and truth and beauty? The Platonists held there is an immaterial world, right? And we can tap into that intuitively. Now, this is important because Paul deals with some of these ideas in Colossians. Um, This is something that is not unfamiliar to the Bible writers. We're going to encounter some of this as we move on. I wish I could spend just 30 minutes explaining Platonism. It's really fascinating. Um, You run into it quite a bit today still, but mostly you're running into Christians that are agreeing with some tenets of Platonism. Another view that was a little bit more common in, at least at the popular level, is the view Epicureanism. Uh, In a nutshell, the Epicureans held that everything that exists is physical or material. They would say made of atoms, right? And that's actually where, you know, they they coined the word. Technically, it was Epicurus' mentor that coined the word atom for the tiniest particle that exists. And they're, they're denying what the Platonists are suggesting. Platonists are saying, ultimately, reality is immaterial. It's based on the blueprint. You guys would say the mind of God. God and God's choice to create human gave human a certain structure, a certain blueprint, and that's how, what, what we call human. But the Epicureans deny this, and they say, no, there's nothing that exists that's not made up of atoms. In fact, Epicurus joked, if there are gods, they'd be made up of atoms too. Kind of funny. He denied that the gods existed, but he said if they did, they'd be made up of atoms as well. So these are the ultimate, they were atheists of the day. Modern atheism is very similar to Epicureanism. You still run across this quite a bit. And finally, and something you encounter even more in the New Testament Um, is the idea of Stoicism. This is a philosophy that's hard to characterize. Some say it's materialism as well, but it's really more of a pantheism where God is the world. But it's not a personal God. This is a God who just is. It's more of an idea, and they called this idea the Logos, or they might pronounce it more like Logos. And the Logos, you you know this word, it's used a lot in the New Testament, in the beginning was the Logos. And John, a good Jew, is giving a shout out to the Old Testament here, but he well knows how that is going to properly be taken in his day. The Greeks held to a Logos as well. But for a Stoic, it's an impersonal, abstract web of interconnected everything. Like everything holds together because of the Logos. Um, so this isn't a deity like you and I would know it. This is a deity that is impersonal and abstract. So we're going to counter this as we move on. I just kind of want to give you a, a shout out. Again, this is way more complex. There's different forms of each one of these views. I'm reducing it to something that's manageable. The next thing to note is the Greek ge- geography, how um, Ale- uh, really is mostly Alexander the Great, Uh, conquered 
the known world. I love this map because it's terrible. You guys, uh, Arrested Development fans, Buster Bluth. This is the Buster Bluth map. Well, obviously, the land is blue. Um, so that, that's it. I just, I like that map. It always, you know, gets a chuckle, but, you know, I haven't really gotten going yet, so sorry about that. Um, so here it is. This is what Alexander the Great conquered. Uh, you may know that Alexander the Great was tutored by Aristotle, who um, Plato taught. So um, Alexander the Great had great respect for proper thinking and just understanding things. Aristotle invented a lot of the subjects that we all know. He didn't really. He just gave a name to it. So botany, zoology, biology, right? And Alexander had a respect for all these disciplines. And what happened was after Alexander conquered this region, I especially want you to notice right here, because we're going to be zooming in in Judea right here. When he conquered that, behind his armies were kind of armies of scientists of all different kinds, natural philosophers, etc., etc. So when he conquered, you have all these nerds following the armies and going, hey, look at the cool bug. Never seen that bug before. Let's, let's you know, chart it out. Like, let's, let's, let's name it. Let's classify it. And as he went, they also established schools and other sorts of things that lasted to some extent. So, fast forward to the New Testament, this whole region primarily spoke Greek. Some of this fell away. You don't get the Greek speaking necessarily much in the future. The empire collapsed, long story. But in the Roman world, well, well, maybe you've heard that Latin was the universal language, and that's partially true. In the East, the real language of business, commerce, and everything else was Greek. So obviously this connects well, and it's why a lot of the people that we're going to look at have Greek names, they spoke Greek, and early Jewish people and Christians after them had to deal with this Greek influence. It's a foreign power that conquered your land. Just imagine that today, right? And how you deal with that as a church is going to define you to some, uh, actually a great extent, by the way, before I forget, we'll pause for Q&A in about like uh, 40 minutes or so to give 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes of Q&A. So if you have any questions, just kind of hold on to it. All right, so let's move on to the second context, the Roman context. This is uh, maybe a little more familiar to you. You open up your Bible at the very end. There's maps and stuff, and you know Rome was the superpower. Notice that they conquered a lot of modern nations, like the equivalent to, I mean, this is a massive empire. And so I'll just characterize it in ways that are applicable for us. Uh, first, it's government, you probably know, strong, centralized, very powerful. The important point here is that it led to a lot of stability for that day. Yes, I know. Every time an emperor died, you have civil wars. It, it was a mess after the end of every term. Kind of like that here. It's just more people getting angry at each other, but fortunately, we don't kill each other. Um, a lot of stability for that day. And what this allowed was a really rapid growth of certain cities um, through um, an, a really strong economy, relatedly. To give you one example, uh, the grain from the Nile, from this really fertile region, 
was constantly traded with, you can't really see it here, sorry, the city of Rome. And it allowed Rome to reach a, an outstandingly large population when very few cities made it beyond 50,000. And that was big. That's a really big city. It made it to a million. The next one to do that in the West was London. And you probably don't need to know much about dates to know that's a long time away. Uh, so the Mediterranean Sea acted as a kind of like a road, well, I mean like sea, you know, travel, but that means really easy transportation of goods. If you were moderately wealthy, you could have mostly anything in that day that you wanted. Education, much like everything else, the Romans um, in every area, whenever they conquered the people, they would borrow from that culture whatever the best or good stuff that they did. They would incorporate it into their own, um, you know, their own system, their own culture. So they took education from the Greeks. And so really uh, excellent education. Uh, we still do that today. Classical education is basically Greek, filtered through Roman, and then developed by the medieval people uh, millennia later. Classical education, we still do this model. Um, so there you have it. Roads, great roads, connected everything. You all know this. Um, but what's surprising, and not just about roads, but travel, is the policing that Rome was able to do on them so that merchants and travelers didn't really have to worry. Starting in about 10 AD, they didn't really have to worry about bandits and robbers and pirates. Have you ever noticed when Paul's talking on his missionary journeys, he doesn't ever say, well, pray for, I hope we don't run into any uh, pirates, pray for me, right? He's just worried about storms. And that's pretty crazy for that day when you think about it. Um, language, yeah, from Italy, a region where, where uh, Rome you know, started, they conquered Italy first, obviously, uh, Latin was their language, and that became the universal language of government. So if you're a governmental employee, you better know your Latin. Most of them were from Italy, so no problem there. Uh, Latin tended to be the universal language over here, and then Greek over here, because of Alexander the Great mostly. So that's easy to remember. Meanwhile, there's local dialects everywhere. For example, Augustine of Hippo. The guy who wrote the Confessions, great book. You should read. I'm not going to cover him. That's uh, he, 400 AD, but he spoke Numidian and Latin, right? So it's a different world than today. This is an empire, not a united nation. Uh, law. They were known for their day being a fair people. They were even known to be tolerant as an empire for that day. I get it. From our standpoint, it's like awful, right? If they hated somebody crucified him, right? Um, and that's horrible to, to our minds. But for that day, it was, they, were, they were known for a just law, a just system of law, especially if you're a citizen. Now, the important point for us is that they gave Judea, especially, a lot of freedom that they didn't necessarily give other nations. And the reason was, was that they thought the Jews were high maintenance, Right? They would just rebel if we actually put all these extra laws on us. So they gave them kind of their own government. And it wasn't until 6 AD uh, when Judea, they, they rebelled, that uh, a, the Rome appointed a governor over Judea. And you, 
Pilate was one of these. In fact, Pilate's the one we know the most about. Uh, We don't know much about governors. No one cares about Judea. It was a washout that went to Judea. So that just gives you an idea. It allowed the Judaism to thrive relatively. So they had to pay taxes. That was about it. They didn't have to be conscripted. They didn't have to worship all the Roman gods, do the sacrifices to the emperor. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but do you, you know, if burning incense meant worship, do you want to do that to the emperor? Well, the Jewish people didn't. Rome gave them the free pass card, I guess you could call it. And I've already mentioned the context of Rome was always conquering and uh, sort of taking in all the best from every culture. And as they did that, their pantheon got really big. Uh, The basic Greek pantheon was, you know, is their their main gods, you know, like Jupiter and all that, renaming Zeus. But they also had a lot of secondary deities as well as household deities. Uh, You'd go to the fireplace to see whose deities or what and what they worshipped. So interesting context. Probably the main takeaway here is that Romans are a lot like us in the sense of pluralism. People were used to disagreeing with each other in Rome because you had Epicureans and Stoics. Yeah, those are Roman as well. They're remaining Platonists. People disagreed, and yet they're all in a thriving community. So finally, let's zoom in, the final third context here. I know this is all the boring stuff, but it really opens up your eyes to the early church when you see all this stuff connect. Here's the region of Judea. Sorry, it's not as clear as as I would like. Um, We're going to zoom in here. It's sort of the outskirts of the Roman Empire. And it was really only important because the roadway connecting Egypt and Minor, modern-day Turkey. That was really the only reason for its importance. But here, as we know, and this is going to be even more familiar to you, is the Jewish context. And Christians, for the first several decades, are virtually all Jews. And they would have called themselves Jews, not Christians. So this is a really important reminder that these are Jewish people that now, after Jesus resurrected, they're like, but Jesus is Yahweh, or Lord. Uh, So here's the Jewish context two main beliefs that stand out and kind of made them weirdos of the day. And the first is monotheism. You don't run into that in the ancient world. It was a weird view, kind of like polytheism is kind of weird today. Uh, Most people in history are polytheists. Jews sort of stood out. Most people in the future, incidentally, are also polytheists. And I know that because I watched Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) like got to spice it up somehow, right? So that's the first, this belief in one God. Uh, This is all Greek words, yay. Most Most words in history are either Greek or Latin. And then next is not very familiar. If you have Jewish friends today, they're not generally Messianic anymore, unless they're Christian, Messianic Jews. But back then, from about 6 AD through 70 AD or so, Jews were very hopeful about the Messiah coming. And when you hear Messiah here, think anointed and thus king. Jesus is the Christ, right? What that's, it's getting at something that doesn't translate to us because we're Christian. We're like, yeah, of course, Jesus is the Messiah. But they were expecting a king to overthrow Rome. 
And it was like an any day now sort of thing. They had a whole political party that was dedicated to picking up the sword and following the general, the king, into battle to overthrow Rome. Jesus gives a lot of these shout-outs. He's often ripping on this perspective, but it's just something that you need to bear in mind. It was a messianic figure in 6 AD that ruined it for everyone, and then Judea got the, uh, the governor from Rome. So these two beliefs are good enough. You kind of know most of the, mo- uh, most of the rest. Um, but there's more to say here, because this was a really turbulent time as these Jewish people are struggling to come to grips with Rome and the broadly Greek culture from the centuries before. How do you deal with that? If you're a conquered land, let's say we lost World War II, uh, the Japanese took Arizona, right? There's actually a show about this if you don't have a great, uh, great creative sort of way to do this in your head. Um, but uh, imagine that, and imagine us worshiping now, but there's not what we're used to over us. There's lords over us that, we're not, that aren't us. They're not our culture. Well, these Jewish people felt the same way. It was Greek broadly influenced philosophy, language, everything else, but also the Roman peoples who conquered, and, and here they are now, under a foreign rule. kind of feels like the exile. So there is a reaction to this, and it leads to four different groups broadly. There's dozens. Here's big picture groups of Jews during the day. Most of them were just every, uh, everyday people. But here are four sort of, they're called sects at the time. You'd call it a denomination. That's S-E-C-T-S. The first were the good guys. These are the people that got the most attention. They were the popular ones. These are the Pharisees. Uh, These would be the people that are, you know, teaching. Uh, These would be the people that are writing books. These are the people that were the popular teachers as well. And the reason they had Pharisees is because the people hungered. Yeah, I'm a Pharisee, y'all. I think you all are too, actually. We're going to get there in a second. This is sort of the relatable group. This is what happens when you try to apply the gospel to all of life. But the problem is that they flip the relation between law and grace. But that's what they did. That's what the people wanted. They're like, I'm living under an an overlord who doesn't like us, doesn't like our religion. How do I live? Help me, Pharisee teacher. Help me, rabbi, is what they would say. And the rabbis would write rules to make people feel better. Wise rules. They were wise for the day. And that wasn't the problem. But the problem, and this is where, you know, Jesus pops up in the New Testament. He's always ripping on them, right? But it's because they misunderstand how to enter into the covenant community. And they flip law and grace, right? Just be a good person, and then God will show you grace. It's like, oh, Jesus has a problem with that. So now the reason they're getting ripped on the most in the New Testament is because they're the closest to where Jesus is at. Jesus is a rabbi. He's applying the gospel to all of life, too. They're so close to him, and that's why they get his attention, unlike some other groups that he barely interacts with. And because they're farther away, they're just not in the same ballpark sometimes. So the Sadducees, fortunately, this is the one thing that Sunday school did teach you well. It is true 
that they did not believe in the resurrection of the body, and that's why they were so sad, you see. <laughs> Boo. It's true. Usually those rhymes don't believe it. Usually it's made up. Uh, this one's true. And now the reason for that is because they were old school. They thought that only Moses' books, the first five, were the inspired books. The rest of the Old Testament, great, but it's commentary on the first five, at best. If not, it's more apocryphal and level of authority. So they only held to what Moses taught, and you know, you don't necessarily get the clearest teachings on the resurrection yet in the first five books. So they rejected that, they rejected even the existence of the soul, and a host of other ideas that put them at odds with Jesus. Jesus was closer to the Pharisees, he could talk with them, and he's like, why don't you get me? Why don't you? You think about him talking to Nicodemus. So close, but so far, right? But the Sadducees, he only interacts with like once or twice, and it's like pretty obnoxious, right? Uh, So anyway, look up Sadducee in the Bible, and you can read it for yourself. But anyway, so that, uh, I should say more, actually. They're part of the ruling class. The Sadducees were old money uh, tied to the temple. Uh, They were in charge of the temple, and a lot of stuff goes to the temple. That's the main source of wealth. And so the people didn't like him as much. They kind of saw him as the man. Third group, this is a good example of breathing air because everyone was influenced by the zealots of the day. Um, This idea, the zealots wanted to overthrow Rome with the sword. But it was specifically a party of people that were kind of banded together like an army, so to speak, and just waiting for the right Messiah at times. Sometimes they're planning... You can see some of the former disciples of Jesus were zealots. You have people called the zealot. There you go. But it's also just the air they're breathing. Everyone would have been influenced by this. Just like today, like we're, we're influenced by whatever's going on in our culture. Whatever Christians say, Christians believe. If they say it over and over again, everyone will eventually say, that's what I believe too, right? Whatever it is. And so this is a good example where Peter even tries to play zealot misses badly, and Jesus has to heal the guy's ear, right? Right at the end there. So you're seeing that's a zealot tendency, picking up the sword in the name, or really against Caesar. The goal was uh, autonomy. So that was another group. And then finally, you don't get much of this, except in the background, maybe with John the Baptist. We're not really sure. And that's the Essenes. I actually didn't know much about these folks, until the Dead Sea Scroll uh, discoveries. The Essenes' reaction to Hellenism, uh, Greek influence, Roman culture, their reaction was retreat in the desert. Pharisees, it's engaged. All of life is, you know, all for, actually, there you go. That, David, that, that was a saying too. That's a Christian saying as well. But let's apply the gospel for all of life. That's the Pharisee view. For the Essenes, it's let's get out of this dirty, grumpy culture because I don't think we can be properly Jewish in it. Isn't that cool? We used to have some of that uh, today as well. You think of the Amish. Uh, The Essenes lived out in the desert, made their own communities, little cities, and um, they basically wrote books, copied scripture, etc., etc. A lot of what we know from history is because they preserved it. But they were recluse. They were, um, you know, out in the 
middle of nowhere eating oats and, or oats, sorry, honey and oats is where I was going there. Um, uh, what am I trying to, locusts and honey, there we go. I need, that needs to be a cereal. There we go, locusts and honey, the John the Baptist style. Uh, there's some scholars that try to make the case that he was an Essene. He certainly had Essene-like tendencies, but given where he was and where he came from, we can tell from the historical record, he maybe hung out with them for a while, but he was not an Essene. It's hard to say. But again, that's part of the air they're breathing too, right? It's not abnormal to have a crazy uncle in the desert. I know it sounds kind of weird. Well, here we are. <laughs> we're all, guys, we're the crazy uncle. <laughs> so, yeah, in their own communities, they weren't typically on their own. Uh, the Jewish people did not just stay in Judea for all kinds of reasons, business reasons especially. Uh, They moved elsewhere throughout the Roman Empire. You'd hear it called the dispersion quite frequently. This is the dispersing of Jewish people all uh, in Egypt and then in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Those were the two places where there was the most synagogues. Yeah, they would go, and it's uh, usually for business reasons, but they're still devout Jews. How do you worship? Temple is a long way away, so they built synagogues as sort of reflections of the temple. That's going to be really important uh, because when Paul is going places teaching, he's always going to the synagogue first. There's already Jews there, even though it's not the Holy Land. Impact on early Christians, this is really immeasurable. I'm just going to note three things really quick. Uh, First is that uh, the Jewish folks, given the dispersion, they're primarily speaking Greek. And over time, if you're a businessman who's uh, who's a Jew and you move out to, let's say, Egypt, you're not going to speak Aramaic anymore. You're going to forget Hebrew, but you're going to know Greek. At least your kids will. And eventually the old languages die off. So they decided to translate the Old Testament into the Greek. And this this is what's called the Septuagint. It's just a translation. Um, There's some controversy here on exactly proportions, but in general, there's a wide agreement that uh, when New Testament authors are citing the Old Testament, not surprising, they're using the Greek translation. They're writing in Greek, so why not use the Greek translation already available? Paul sometimes reverse translated from Hebrew to Greek because he knew both, but uh, it's, it's, there's, it's kind of one of those debates, so it's hard to say with certainty. But what you can say with certainty is that this was the most popular translation of the Old Testament during that day. Uh, also, an impact here is obviously preserving the text of Scripture uh, you think of the Essenes here, and um, et cetera. And then finally, synagogues are built. Uh, all around uh, the Mediterranean, but especially in Egypt and Asia Minor. Why this is important is Christianity was allowed to spread pretty quickly. Because Jews are most of the way there, at least that's what Paul thought. You're right, just add Jesus as Yahweh, and they got it. So he'd always go to the synagogue first, and then to the marketplace. So pretty cool. That's, that's the context. Sorry, I couldn't find any map that was legitimate in English, but this is good enough. 
Um, really just the dots are all that's important. That, that's what we know to be uh, different synagogues that existed in the first and second century. Uh, that's quite a lot. You can see an outstanding amount down here. And this is just what we know about. Um, archaeology is a hard thing, but it takes a lot of time. But you can imagine there's a lot of synagogues still buried. So there you have it. Let's move on. And we're moving closer to 30 AD now. We're going to jump right into birth, death, resurrection really quickly with Jesus and then head out from there. So the coming of the Son, God becoming human, that's the incarnation. Uh, it happened, we're not exactly sure, maybe 4 BC, maybe 6 BC. Uh, we're not exactly, it wasn't zero, sorry. <laughs> Um, a lot of my students are like, well, I thought it would just be zero. Well, the Roman historian that was put in charge of dating Jesus, <laughs> they, they definitely botched it. Um, so, but that's okay. It's just a date, right? So he came um, and he grew up in this really small city, at least by our standards, Nazareth. Can you read that? Yeah, I think that's readable. Just, you know, this is a small town. Everyone knows each other. Everyone knows everyone's business. You got to empathize with Mary here, with Jesus here. I, I, I don't try it out, but if you try to explain to your friends that, no, no, I swear it wasn't, you know, we're not married yet. It wasn't Joseph. Uh, God made me pregnant. People are going to think you're crazy, right? So imagine the small town vibe here. Kind of empathize with Mary as we move on. Um, pretty normal life, apparently, up till about the age of 30. We're not really sure. Uh, the reason 30 years is always given is because that's when you could become a rabbi. Jewish people, just like hopefully anyone, they don't trust the 20-year-olds, right? <laughs> too arrogant, too ambitious. So 30 years was sort of a magic number, so that's why it's thrown out there. We're not exactly sure. Um, his baptism would have sparked kind of like the realization in everyone's mind. What Mary was saying all along, apparently it got into Jesus's head. He thinks he's the Messiah too. Baptism here would have signaled in this context, this new Messiah. You kind of imagine people there hearing the voice, you're my son with whom I love, you're with whom I'm well pleased. Echoing language that God said to Abraham and David primarily, a little bit of Moses thrown in there. This is language of son of God. Uh, what they would have meant by that is the King Jesus. And if I'm in the crowd, I'm thinking, sweet, get in my sword. Because that's what it would have spoke in that day. Um, the historical record focuses the most on the exorcisms, this idea of miracle work and all that. And miracle working is probably number one, actually. Uh, this was a really important part of Jesus's ministry. Um, uh, we all know that, obviously, and just kind of noting what comes out the most in the historical record, especially Josephus. Tacitus mentions that, too. He's a Roman historian. Uh, we know just from the Bible all this stuff, of course, too. And we also know there's 12 main disciples. We all get that. <clears throat> but those are the main ones. In the, in the background, they're also called disciples. We're not really sure, but at least hundreds of them. Um, follow Jesus in the background. They weren't real gung-ho, but they're there, right? And we know that he lost these disciples sometime around when he said, eat me and you will live forever. So go back to the 
John sermons and John reflects, uh, yeah, that, that's when people turned away. This teaching is too harsh, they said. Um, we're not exactly sure even the day he was executed. Here's the two best guesses. I suspect the second one is more likely to be true. I actually like, like it too because April Fool's, right? <laughs> I'm dead, <laughs> but not for long. <laughs> April Fool's, just kidding. They didn't have, just in case, like, they didn't have April Fool's. It actually would have been April 3rd by their time, uh, given, it doesn't matter, no one cares, but <laughs> given the way we date things and with leap year and all that stuff. So it technically April 3rd by their, but it would translate, if you're doing a DeLorean time machine, set it to April 1st. <laughs> and maybe uh, also 30 AD. That would put Jesus in his mid to late 30s, which is about right with everything we would know. Uh, he obviously resurrects three days later, and then, and then he finally ascends. And suddenly the spirit, this is a really fascinating narrative. It also shows up in the historical record, just very briefly, where there's a, the Pentecost, a coming of the spirit, um, and Luke uh, reflects, you know, Luke wrote Acts. And Luke is one of the better writers in the New Testament. He's clearly got grasp of classical Greek. It's not an easy Greek to understand, as opposed to Koine. I mean, it is, there's an overlap between them. But even Luke is struggling with his language here, and you can see it. He's like trying to come up with words that explain what... Um, uh, what he saw happen if he was there, or more likely what somebody told him happened. So this idea of a mighty rushing wind coming down from heaven, divided tongues as of fire. This isn't where you necessarily try to do word studies. This is giving us an image of, wow, it was a world, it was weird. Um, and we have all these people suddenly speaking languages that they didn't know from languages around the world in the audience. So um, there's, there are only Jews there, but they're Jews from around the world, and they're all hearing the, their local dialects, maybe Nubidian. Right? Well, the point here, just to get us to the main takeaway, Luke, God through him, making a really significant point here, and this is the idea of the Pentecost being the reversal of Babel, right? You guys all remember the story of Babel, right? And you have the, we're trying to become God, you know, this, go up this, you know, tower to heaven. It's this human arrogance. Luckily, we're not like this anymore, right? And God's like, nah, you're not going to hang out together and confuses their language. And here now, in Acts 2, it's all brought together again. And people can understand, even though there's different languages, they can understand one another. The point is very clear, and it's kind of a thesis for the rest of the book of Acts. It's the spirit breaking through different cultures. And that's where we're going to be moving on to next, of a reflection of the book of Acts, of the spirit breaking down barriers. So let's move on. Now, this is where... Jesus is ascended now. Uh, spiritually, he's with the disciples. Physically, humanly, he's ascended into heaven. Um, and the first church we have, very clearly and obviously, is the church in Jerusalem. So we're going to start there. That's where Luke starts as well. And it starts in Acts, and it moves outward. 
So here we have it. You guys all know this. And that is the Spirit's work breaking down barriers. Now, in a couple places, as well as the historical record, we have, have a lot of clarity about leadership. There's even a lot of historians that think we can say quite a bit about what each one did. But here's the three primary leaders, not surprising, with Peter and John. I'm not sure if as a kid I just ever caught this, but I always, I always thought it was like James brother of our Lord was just like a figurative thing, right? He's James the disciple, but this is James, Jesus's brother. Uh, We would say half-brother, most likely. Some speculate cousin, most likely half-brother, or possibly brother from another marriage. Uh, Joseph being married possibly before um, Mary and then bringing in the kids after his former wife passed away, probably in childbirth. That was pretty common. Um, More likely, I think, these are kids, we're not sure, but more likely to me um, is that um, after they had Jesus, they had kids, and James would have been the second oldest after Jesus. James is listed in the Bible in quite a few places. Uh, We know that him, along with Simon and Jude, other brothers, and his sisters, they don't name sisters in that context, so we don't have the sisters' names, big family. We know that they didn't follow Jesus, and that shouldn't really surprise you, right? Can you imagine your sibling being like, I'm God. It's like, dude, I'm more athletic than you, Jesus. What do you mean? Man, mom really got to your head, didn't she? Right? We know that they didn't follow him, but here's what's fascinating. Suddenly, after about 30, 33 AD, we know that he's leading his probably older brother, Jesus's church, his new cult. How in the world do you go from Jesus, I'm not with you, to leading his church, right? I don't care who you are, but historians have a hard time explaining this without saying, it sure seems like the resurrected Jesus appeared to James. Paul lists him one of the last. You can read Galatians, and if that's a chronological appearance of Jesus to people, James would have been towards the end. (laughs) I can't imagine being James in that moment. It's like, so sorry, brother. (laughs) Sounded like Buster Booth, right? Ah, I can't talk. No one watched that show, so I'm going to stop talking about Arrested Development. But uh, there you have it. Uh, People often talk about how Paul is interesting proof of the resurrection. How does somebody like that turn into that? But this is way better, and it's really well documented as well. Anyway... So let's talk about the church makeup. These are all Jewish people. And the Jewish people around them considered them Jewish people. There's not a new name for it or anything like that. That's, that's in the future. Um, they would have, uh, you know, not, there wouldn't have been a distinguishing mark yet. Now, over time, they took on different names. Uh, seems like followers of the way or the way for short, was one of the first names. This is still much later, but you have that. And then their enemies, even later than that, called them kind of obnoxiously the sect of the Nazarenes. Um, that's really offensive. It's like, hey, you people from Detroit or something. Sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that. But, you know, whatever region that like, kind of gets ripped on a lot, well, that was Nazareth. So there you have it. Uh, but they're all Jews for quite a while. And they would have acted and lived like Jews for quite a while. 
Um, they, on Saturday, you get this from the New Testament, but you also just get this really plainly from uh, history outside of the Bible. They went to the temple on Saturday. That's what you do, right? The temple's still really valuable. Why not go? And in your head, you're kind of doing, well, Jesus is Lord, right? You're just adding to the service in your head. And then on Sunday, they came together, just the Christ-believing uh, Jews came together, uh, maybe somebody, a wealthy person's foyer. There's some different places they would meet. And they would have uh, what we call the Lord's Supper. And they would eat together. We don't know exactly what it looked like this early. So I'm talking the 30s and the 40s right now. But um, not much later than this, they would throw, it's like a potluck. Bring the bread you have, bring the wine you have. And we'll all add it to the same container. We'll eat, we'll eat together. It's kind of like a potluck if you were Baptist or uh, grew up with potlucks. Anyone? No? Okay, well, I did. So a little bit like that. And they called it later on the love feast. We're not exactly sure when these titles you know, came through. Sometimes it was called the Eucharist later on as well, which means Thanksgiving. Kind of like a Thanksgiving meal. Um, just as a side note, this was a celebratory meal, right? You're coming together and like, hey, Jesus is risen. That was the emphasis. Jesus is risen. So there you have it. Um, so let's talk about some things that led to some tension. And you know this probably just from doing some Bible study, so I won't need to talk too much about this. Um, somebody cut me off in about two minutes, and then we'll do Q&A time. Uh, so we're two parties in the Church of Jerusalem. These are different flavors of uh, the Jews present. And the reason is that they spoke different languages. Hellenistic influence, Greek, Roman influence. So there's first that Luke calls it, and the historical record calls it, the Hebrews. Now initially, whenever I see that, I think, oh, these are the Jewish people. But no, no, Hebrew is getting at um, being more uh, in tune with Aramaic speaking that, uh, the traditional language that they would have grown up with. And that means that they were, they were born around Palestine. They were born in Judea. They would have spoken this. They would have been much more tied to good old-fashioned Jewish traditions, right? That's the Hebrews. And then the other group was termed the Hellenists, which, you know, looking back at that, you're like, you can see why this is so confusing, right? Because that's, that word means Greek influence. That's what it is. These are Jews who would have spoke Greek. They would have presumably been born in Asia Minor or Egypt, but now they're in Jerusalem for whatever reason, right? So they're going to be more uh, open to Greek outreach, to Greek philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. The quintessential example here, just to jump the gun, we're not there yet, but the quintessential example would be Paul. Paul's a great example of a Hellenized, uh, Hellenistically influenced Jewish person. He writes in pretty exceptional Greek. And so there, there, there you have it. These are the two parties. Think of it as kind of like two different uh, languages in the very same church service. So I don't think we, we're, we don't think that they had two different church services. But can you imagine kind of how hard that would be to worship together? but the other side only having a working understanding of your language. It's got to be hard. And so that led to some controversy we'll be talking about next week. I don't think 
I'll, yeah, we, we won't touch that today. Uh, but just imagine, just on a practical level, meeting together and yet not really speaking the same language. The Hebrews preferred, we, we have this with authority too, the Hebrews preferred a church organ, right? <laughs> a mighty fortresses. They, they liked it that way. But, but then those Hellenists, they're like electric guitar man. <laughs> He's a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. Just kidding, but you know, you can imagine it's sort of like that today, the difference being we have different services. So I'm just having fun. All right, so there you have it. That's, we'll stop here in the middle of the Church of Jerusalem. Things are going to pick up a little bit. Um, so this is a good time to just pause. And if anybody has any questions, um, confusion, or just random interesting thing you're thinking about, it's sort of like a, this is an airplane survey, right? I'm just sort of flying over the terrain, looking down, and it's a pretty big picture. Don't be shy. I don't bite usually. Yeah, Ryan, so was this early church a, a radical departure from the way For the first couple decades, certainly for the first decade, it would have looked like an iteration that's not that different. And out of respect to the, elder, uh, yeah, the elders in the synagogue, they wouldn't like, get up and say, but Jesus is Yahweh. Like that, they, they would keep it to themselves, it seems. Now, the ones that didn't, like Stephen, <laughs> Stephen's a good uh, example of a Hellenist, part of the Hellenist um, Party's a strong word. I'm getting at two different flavors. They're not like enemies or something. They're just have a hard time communicating. So when Stephen spruced that up a little bit, and after he was stoned, um, and then in the next decade, things start to depart a little bit more. But it's really not until the 60s and finally 70 AD that there's a clear break between the two, Jew and Christian. So would they have met in the temple? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the very beginning, they would have met in the temple. And the Hellenists were welcome. Uh, sorry, the Hellenists were welcome at first as well as the Hebrews. But over time, when it became clear that the Hellenists were a little bit more disruptive, uh, it seems like the Hebrews perhaps just continued to worship in the temple until they also got kicked out. So just imagine, you know, imagine that being you, you're a faithful Jew. Jesus doesn't say stop worshiping in the temple, stop doing what you're doing before. So you can understand why, why there would be a very slow transition. By 70, we'll talk about it probably next week, maybe the week after the final week. But by 70, given the temple's destruction and the Jewish war, uh, the, the ties were very, irref- it was just totally broken by then. Any other questions? It was more teaching, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know if we can really date that precisely, except for just somebody digging up something and trying to date that precisely. We know it arose before, um, uh, before the first century, certainly well before Jesus was born. There's already synagogues around. We're, 
I would have to guess to say the exact date, but they're certainly around for a while. It was a surprise to me because I always thought um, synagogues came after the temple's destruction somewhere in my mind. Um, But the synagogues are already showing up in the New Testament as well. And they're also showing up in the historical record, mostly because you still need authority life. You need elders. You need to be able to worship in some way wherever you live, even if you can't make your way to the temple more than once a year. You've got to have something. And that's the, the reason for the synagogue. And yeah, primarily it was a teaching and worship function. You spoke earlier about the diaspora being more of a commerce dispersion based on commerce. And I was always under the impression that it was a result of persecution. Oh, yeah, well, that certainly had some play as well. And the other reason for the diaspora is um, a lot of slaves. Uh, So there's a lot of slaves that are Jewish even by this day. Either they're converted or sometimes they just got sold into it or they sold themselves into it. And that means now you're living wherever you're at, but you need some place to worship. So I think those three reasons together, yeah, I made it way too simplistic by saying business. I was just thinking of a source I was reading that kind of blamed that. But to be honest, you're right. There's a lot of other reasons that there's going to be Jews spread out in the Mediterranean. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, Jews often will say the same thing to us. How do, you, how, how do you see Jesus in the Old Testament, right? How do you see this there? It's funny how uh, you get questions from uh, both sides. But the main reason being they saw this messianic figure um, as the Christ, the Messiah. There's the same language of King David. And David rocked. He was a military genius, Right. And they had sovereignty through David. He's the son of God. The the language of son of God is at the very least God's appointed ruler over the earth. So if there's Rome over you, how can we ever have the fulfillment of the promises where there's, you know, the Messiah who's Lord over us and God's Lord over them? They just took that as an assumption, which, you know, you can see why. And then because of that, if there's an overlord over you, you'd want to overthrow them. And probably the new David would do it. When you read Isaiah, they, they think that you can see that in Isaiah, this new leader who's going to be, a, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, right? And, and they, they read everything that we're often attuned to spiritually. They would read that as like a political rebellion. And that's actually what happened from 66 to 73, the attempt to finally, and they, they, they succeeded, they kicked Rome out of Jerusalem only to use, lose the war later on and the temple. Um, but yeah, that's how they read it, if that makes any sense. Isaiah, was really any of the prophets make it really clear that God's chosen is his son, who's the Messiah, who's going to come to conquer, right? And uh, Jesus is like, yeah, I'm going to do that next coming. This coming, I'm not doing that yet. Um, so uh, a lot of, actually maybe it's a helpful way for you to see it this way. 
is the Old Testament talks about two comings of the Messiah without distinguishing it. They probably didn't understand it yet. Um, but when Jesus' first coming happened, he came as a meager, you know, meek baby, uh, nothing to look upon, right? Uh, he's doing half the mission, and then the second half is the overthrow, <laughs> which is pretty exciting and scary at the same time. And that's when he institutes the new heavens and new earth. Yeah. Not the next week, but yeah, yeah. So how, how would you compare a, a Jewish service to, a, to an Orthodox Christian service, and like how far apart would you say that evolution like, took place? Yeah, I've never really studied the Jewish service in too much detail, so I'd only really be able to guess. But I can say that... Uh, like just because I've studied the Christian services from, you know, 40 to what we think we know to 70 where we know more to 150 where we know more than that. Um, and the main difference seems to be the service of the table or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Um, what Christians did is for the first half, they would read scripture ending in a short sermonette, like 10 minutes tops, but like a couple hours of reading scripture possibly. And then the second half um, was eating food together. And that was the highlight of the service as they understood it. And that was like the fellowship time and all that. And by the way, for that second half, only Christians were invited. So you bring along your non-believing friends to the first half, but then that second half is something that you only do if you're in Christ Led to a lot of rumors, by the way, because no non-Christians were allowed to see. But that would have been the main difference. I could only speculate about more differences. And it is a slow, slow change that becomes much more decisive by 70. So trying to, it's kind of like, describe uh, church services in the 60s versus the 70s, 1960s versus the 1970s. It's like, that's pretty tough because to us, it's going to look the same being removed from it. For some of us, right? I tried to make an old joke. It didn't, didn't find <laughs> um, I have a question about, uh, about communion or the Eucharist. You mentioned that the second half, they would come together and they would feast together. Would they view that like the entire feast as the Eucharist? It seems so, yeah. The language just broadly was breaking bread. Um, Jesus commanded it, do this in remembrance of me. It's a Passover meal. They continued to do it in celebration of what happened. I think we often focus on the death. Uh, Evangelicals like to focus on like the death part, I think, in the Lord's Supper, but they focused on the resurrection part. Yeah, the whole thing was part of that. Yeah, that, it's, it's hard to say with certainty, but as I understand it, it fell away. This isn't something I've studied in a lot of detail. So, um, but as I understand it, a lot of the feasting and um, potluck vibe fell away a little bit during the 200s when the rumors were starting. Uh, they already started in the 100s that Christians are um, doing... Uh, this is only rated PG so far, so I'll just keep it PG. But they were doing things in that second half of the service that they weren't really doing because it kind of had the, the vibe, a Roman thought that it was an orgy. 
because that's Roman culture. If you don't invite people, you have to have a card to come in, and there's a lot of food, and uh, they're all calling each other brother and sister, kissing each other on the cheek. That rumor started in the mid-100s or before, probably before, and I think Christians, as a way of dispelling that, kind of the practice fell off. Because we're like, oh, we don't want to send out that vibe. It was just like, you've got to be a Christian to enjoy Jesus like that, right? Um, so that's likely the case. Because I do know by the three and four hundreds, it's not happening like that anymore. So we won't, we won't cover that in this class, unfortunately. Any other questions? We, can, we don't have that information. Um, actually, something I probably should have said before. Imagine somebody 2,000 years from now uh, trying to study the, like, let's just be, like, you know, real right now, like the, the Afghan church. 2,000 years from now, somebody looking back and trying to study the Afghan church. There are a lot, mostly just holes. We lose a lot of information. We don't really know. Um, from what it seems like in the Bible, it seems like they're probably evangelizing some right away. But it's the ones like Stephen is the only example we really have where he says it, gets into obviously lots of trouble. So we can only speculate. Maybe they're doing it personally. Maybe they're not because that's not necessarily a Jewish thing to do in that day. Evangelizing is not really something that they did. So an early Christian, Jewish Christian, might have an easy time just being like, well, he's going to return soon. I don't really know what to do. And you just sort of, I'm going to go to worship. Right? Just like I did before. You know, Jesus is Lord. So that would be my best guess, but we just don't have that information, unfortunately. It's a great, I, I wish we could go back in time and watch it all happen, right? I bet you'd be all uncomfortable, though, because, you know, Christians in different times and places look different. They wouldn't like us much either. <laughs> you guys look more American than Christian. Ooh, burn. And you're right sometimes, right? So uh, looking back, it's always, this is really one of the most spiritually forming exercises is studying church history, admitting I can be wrong, and also that the gospel is always encultured. You can't, there's no such thing as like an objective culture. <laughs> Here is heaven, and this is what it's going to look like. And by the way, it's iPhones and not, you know, Androids or something like that. No, it's just bringing it all in. Whew, uncomfortable because I don't like iPhones. Any other questions? <laughs> Nothing? Well, the driest part was today. The context part is hard. It's necessary. You'll see why later. Uh, but thanks, and uh, it's going to get really interesting. It's going to pick up, and... Lots of weird stuff and a lot of stuff that you're like, yeah, that makes sense as we move on. Um, so anyway, thanks for being with me, and I'll see you next week. Yeah. Oh, I have a couple of books that if you want books to learn more about this, I just want to say real quick, I'm just going to do the one. It's kind of like a textbook, but if, it's like undergrad level, I think. 
It's probably, probably the best on it. And that's um, New Testament History, a Narrative Account by Witherington. Um, this is really clear. I think it's accessible. It's not going to be the most readable thing unless, you know, but it's the best I can find that's not full of, you know, inaccuracies. So this is good stuff. So feel free to get I'll leave it up here if you guys are interested. All right. Yeah, that's it. I think. Yeah. Woo. See you guys next week.